0: Hello, and thanks for joining us. This is Disruptors at Work, an integrated care podcast, where all of the topics will be with subject matter experts, practitioners and providers, leaders and managers who are implementing integrated health projects all over the world. I'm your host, Dr. Kara English. All right, everyone, welcome and thanks for joining us. This is the Cummings Graduate Institute Disruptors at Work podcast. And today I have with me my guest, Dr. Liza Clancy. Liza is a LCSW from Bradley Beach, New Jersey, and she recently completed her Doctor of Behavioral Health at Cummings Graduate Institute, and she is now working in her, her, her practice that she created, Season Psychotherapy and Wellness in Bradley Beach, New Jersey. Welcome, Liza. can't wait to talk more with you today.
1: Thank you so much, Dr. English. It's very nice to see you. (laughs)
0: It is great. So for those of you who are listening, this is the first time in several months that I've been able to see Dr. Clancy. And the last time that I saw her was in person at the commencement here in June um, in Phoenix, Arizona. So it's, it's, we're on zoom and we can see each other's faces and and that's always a gift. So Okay, well, let's jump right in. Um, So, thanks so much for agreeing to spend some time with me today. Um, As you know, we've been talking a little bit and sharing more about culminating projects with our audience. So oftentimes, one of the first questions that a prospective student wants to know is, what do people do for their culminating projects, which we call Mm -hmm. CP. Mm-hmm. um and you know like you and i talked about and and all students at cgi talk about with me as as i advise and chair culminating projects really the topic is is very much up to the person and we encourage you to take a lot of um in, interest freedom of interest and and to explore what you really are interested in and to dive deep into what you feel you're most passionate about so that you can really build a career stepping stone or, you know, expand your current business model based on the work that you do in your CP. We want it all to be valuable and meaningful, not just an academic exercise. Mm -hmm. So can you tell us a little bit about your CP topic and how you came to focus on it?
1: Sure, absolutely. And I I just want to say that I think Cummings is unique and the DBH degree is unique in that respect, it really is um, very versatile and allows students to really pick up on their, on their fields of interest and develop it uh, to the point where uh, when you get the degree in your hand, you're ready to, to go. And um, you know, your business plan is already made and you really can, um, it, it's very marketable and, and it's, uh, it's a very practical
0: degree in that respect. I'm really uh, so, glad you had that experience. That makes me really happy.
1: Yeah, absolutely. In fact, you know, we'll get to this later, I'm sure. I, 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 I suspected that I wanted to go into private practice at some point, but, you know, having to actually produce a business plan definitely accelerated that process for me. And really the the culminating project um served as you know, it really synthesized all of the different threads, brought them together uh, into a very valuable uh, experience and prospect for me once I finished, you know so Great. anyway, now here I am and yeah. uh, I'll tell you a little bit about the CP. Right so yeah, I had an interest in anxiety and began to look at the the neurological underpinnings of it. Um, And there's a course called Neuropathophysiology, as well as um, another neuro course Mm -hmm. uh, taught by Dr. Janet Cummings. And those were some of my favorites, although possibly the most difficult, Um, uh, but- Those
0: are medical literacy classes. And Dr. Janet Cummings has, always taught those for us for a good reason. They are a more challenging and, you know, deeper level, level of science, um, you know, than most of our other classes, which are very professional driven. Mm-hmm. And um, at the yeah. same time, most students really enjoy them because the way that she teaches them is very student friendly.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And so I picked up sort of on the idea of neuroplasticity and I really, you know, one of my mottos, and I, I think it's in my profile on psychology today, even um, is really how small shifts in thinking can, can make tremendous impact on one's life. And really that's where neuroplasticity comes in. And so my, my culminating project turned into the role of neuroplasticity in the treatment of cortical anxiety and rumination, because I noticed that so many people are ruminators kind of like myself, um, you know, and this is sort of a way out. So my CP really allowed me to look at the physiological basis of anxiety, the difference between cortical and amygdala anxiety, and to develop a treatment protocol to address it, mm-hmm. um, followed by a business plan, um, you know, where I could actually practice these things that I wrote about in the CP. Yeah. And so, so that's that's sort of how it developed. Though I wasn't mm-hmm. so sure when I started it. Um, the end result uh, <laughs> turned out to be really just kind of a very a very specific instruction manual, which is handy. So.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so let's unpack a couple of the terms that you used for listeners who may not be as familiar. Let's start with neuroplasticity. Can you tell us a little bit about what that means and how you used it in your CP?
1: Yes. So neuroplasticity really, you know, I learned this along the way when I was doing the research to write this paper. And, you know, neuroplasticity was sort of discovered serendipitously when when scientists were looking at the brain and when people had strokes and that sort of thing, you know, way back. And um, they realized that brain cells were regenerating and if they couldn't, uh, then people, the brain sort of used other parts of itself um, Mm -hmm. to pick up the pieces, so to speak. And um, so basically people are are able to regain some function despite the damage done by the stroke. And that sort of was the introduction to this concept of neuroplasticity.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's uh, interesting to see the the dendritic growth. If you've ever watched those videos over time, Um, the new branches that form after, you know, having pruned or um, stroke injury or other brain injury. It's really interesting yes. to watch that. Yeah. It is exciting for people to know that, not completely unlike a starfish, <laughs> we have regenerable cells.
1: <laughs> yes, exactly. And, you know, this has tremendous implications in so many areas. But, you know, as a psychotherapist, uh, it's very useful to be able to look at people, you know, and, and to know that they have this potential to change and to, to make improvements so that they can function better and be better and feel better.
0: Yeah. You know, and I, and I think that's a, a critical concept for people to hear, especially right now, because there are so many people struggling in the aftermath of the COVID pandemic who, you know, may have noticed that they suffer from anxiety and depression for the first time. And their concept of a mental illness is that you get a diagnosis and that diagnosis lives with you forever and you need medication and you have to stay on that medication forever. It's that real disease model focus. Whereas this concept is really kind of parallel in our understanding of what disease really means. It might mean low functioning in certain areas but from a neuroplasticity model, we can say your brain will be able to generate new pathways. Yes. And your brain is trainable and that's very right. exciting.
1: Yes. And it's really, it's non-binary, right? It's not you either sick or you're well,
0: mm-hmm. you know, there's
1: a huge spectrum there. And uh, another concept was sort of a, um, flows from neuroplasticity is psychological flexibility. And what we've learned is that people who are more psychologically flexible tend to do better. Um, They're able to adapt to things like COVID and to restrictions associated with it. Mm -hmm. Um, And psychological flexibility, you know, really determines who a person is and how they operate. Mm -hmm. And um, it's not necessarily completely changeable, However, there are things that can be done in interve- interventions that help people to become a little bit more flexible so they can be more responsive to their environment.
0: Yes, very true. One of the, um, one of the subject areas I'm, I'm working on right now, we're, we're going to be, well, we're doing some research into the, the burnout rates and the anxiety and depression rates of physicians and, and other healthcare providers. Does't matter what kind of healthcare care provider, but definitely inclusive of behavioral health care providers. Mm-hmm. And that concept of, you know from a personality standpoint or from a cognitive standpoint, having more psychological flexibility leads to a lower level of chronic stress and burnout among the healthcare care provider, you know professional um, population. And so it's interesting that you say that because so many people are looking for a cure, you know, what, what Mm -hmm. training do I need so that I can be more resilient or a hospital system may be looking for a training to provide so that they're losing fewer physicians to burnout and, you know, which causes people to leave the profession, which they spent hundreds of thousands of dollars preparing for. Mm -hmm. And so Can you unpack that idea a little bit further for our listeners? What what does psychological flexibility look like?
1: Yeah, well, there are so many things I could say in response to that. Um, You know, I deal with people who are often are dealing with comorbidities and chronic medical conditions, and, you know, this can be applied to that as well. Mm-hmm. Because you know, when they're give, people are given a diagnosis, they feel like it's a sentence, you know. Yes. Um, and often diseases are progressive and certainly there's depression associated with that and adjustment. But there's also a lot of training that can be done to help people put the, the disease into perspective mm-hmm. and to recognize that there may be functional limitations, but we want to help people, you know live optimally within uh within the disease and have the disease just become part of who they are as opposed to
0: defining them right right so
1: uh you know and i think the other the other uh focus with regard to to what you talked about is you know the medical profession and integrated health in general and how having doctors of behavioral health or behavioral health specialists on staff in medical facilities, in emergency rooms, in doctor's offices and primary care in specialty care all over the place um, mm-hmm. can really be integral in helping, you know, the medical community deal with mm-hmm. patients uh, so that the burnout is less because, you know, if people are treated on an ongoing basis and there's enough support in place, you know, uh, they're more likely to be adherent and treatment compliant and to take advantage of of interventions and healthy alternatives and that sort of thing which certainly would drive down the burnout rate for the medical professionals. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we're so frustrated, you know, by people being non-compliant and um, getting sicker and sicker with higher acuities and winding up in emergency care.
0: Right. Yeah. And, you know, just the burden of, I've talked with so many healthcare providers who've said, I don't know how you do what you do. I hated my psych rounds that I had to do, but we were made to do them. And I couldn't wait until it was over because I just didn't want, I just, I couldn't do it. I think it's a real trigger for a lot of healthcare providers who really didn't believe that they would be dealing with the mm-hmm. level of mental health that, you know, primary care in particular, but also every healthcare provider now, is recognizing in, in the populations that they treat. And I think they deserve help. They deserve having one of us shoulder to shoulder with them, without a absolutely. doubt. And yeah, you're absolutely right. There have been studies that integrated care can drive down that burnout rate yeah. for providers when they have one of us on their team.
1: Yeah, another thing I came across in doing the research for my CP was the statistic of just how many mental illnesses, and uh, psychiatric issues are picked up in primary care. Mm -hmm. And when referrals are made to specialty care, to either community health uh, centers, uh, behavioral health care facilities, you know, very few people actually accept the referral Mm -hmm. and follow it through. And so that really speaks to the need to treat uh, psychiatric and psychological distress in primary care and to have the appropriate staffing in order to do that. Absolutely. Uh, because, yeah. you know, people don't follow through on referrals and they become sicker, uh, which certainly raises the burden of their their medical illnesses. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's just sort of a, a rolling stone. So um, Absolutely.
0: Yeah. And, you know, there are so many different factors that contribute to that. But I think, you know, as a provider, even as a, you know, a mental health provider, when you're asking a patient to follow up on something you've encouraged them to do. I've had, you know, I've worked with a lot of patients with diabetes and I've said, um, you know, when's your next appointment with your endocrinologist? And, you know, were they will report to me something that concerns them and I'll say, you know, would you mind giving your endocrinologist a call about that? And, you know, if you would like me to do that outreach for you, I'm happy to do it. We can sign a release of information. I can call and coordinate care. They're usually more comfortable doing it themselves, but I've also had patients with very busy lives, lots of small children, and it's hard to make that phone call. It's, you know, there are many, many different reasons for not being able to follow through on that. And it feels like part of it is my own failure, right. As a healthcare provider, because my patient is failing. So there's something more I should be doing is the, you know, implication there. Um, And we often hear this in the public, right? So as a physician um, or if a patient isn't getting well, the first question is, or the first implication is that the doctor doesn't know what they're doing and that they need to make a second opinion. And, and so there's so much scrutiny, I think, among healthcare providers and it's really driving up a lot of anxiety and a yeah. lot. Of overwhelm.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. And one of the aspects that I built into my business plan and the model that I'm working with is really to try to coordinate care for patients that have a multitude of issues or even you know for example I have a a patient who is very complicated and he's involved in a lot of systems. And while it's not necessarily that I am the driving force between coordinating his care, it helps for me to be coordinated in his care and to have an understanding of all of the different pieces, you know, cogs in the wheel, because at the end of the day, you know, we're looking at one whole person. Right,
0: right. Yeah. And It's interesting that you mentioned, you know, being sometimes in the integral piece in coordinating care, I have found many times that while the idea and concept of care coordination and and communication among healthcare providers in a non-integrated setting is certainly nothing new, it just doesn't happen very often. You don't Mm -hmm. have, you know, physician to physician um, phone call, and I have also had a hard time um, with callbacks from providers that I've reached out to, to make attempts to coordinate care um, or at least communicate, you know, care with other providers. Um, and I think in a lot of ways, it's, it's, a, system, it's a system barrier that, you yeah. know, if you can't get reimbursed for it, we don't do it, right, is, yeah. is an implication yeah. in the system often.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and that is really, I think, the main reason that I entered into the CGI program and the field in general is because, you know, having worked for many years in the field of medical social work, and also having, you know, had family members involved in 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 the medical system, mm-hmm. uh, you know, when they were declining, it was such a source of frustration about the lack of coordination and all of the um, crevices and and uh, and cracks to fall through uh right. it, it is shocking that, that anybody can can sort of get what they need and i right. think we need people to sort of pull the the string and and uh pull pull things together and synthesize information for families and for individuals uh yeah. so that they can make the best use of of the healthcare care system right. and i've actually seen some progress in that area recently which is both surprising and encouraging you know that yeah. it actually And work. Um, But there certainly are lots of times when it doesn't. And I I think um, behavioral health specialists are really that missing link. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, I completely agree. I think, I think while integration in name only is being used a lot, and I would even go as far as to use the word rampantly um, Mm -hmm. in the medical community when we know that true integration is several levels away (laughs) from you know, what, what a doctor of behavioral health views from an evidence-based perspective as optimal integration, um, to achieve, you know, the quadruple aim Uh involved. Um, you know, it's definitely something that is coming. And I believe that, you know, and I often quote Dr. Nick Cummings by saying that when doctors of behavioral health become the CEOs Uh and healthcare will change. Yeah, good quote. We've heard him say that. We know it's true. And and that's one of the things I'm really proud about our our graduates, you know, using their business plans to really attack opportunities to improve care. So let's merge into that topic, shall we? Let's uh, segue. So tell me a little bit more about your project itself. You did a lot of research around the cortical and amygdalic, and I'm sorry Mm -hmm. if I'm misusing that term. Anxiety. No. Tell us a little bit about the difference between the two.
1: Yeah, yeah, and this comes up all the time uh, in practice. Um, so the amygdala is really the 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 more rudimentary or primal process mm-hmm. or part of the brain that deals with um, you know stress and, and and emergencies, whereas the the cortical piece. Uh, where the prefrontal cortex is the more rational part of the brain, and so what we want to do in top-down therapy anyway is to sort of use the, the the prefrontal cortex to help people learn to tamp down their amygdala and and tell it that you know there's not a tiger running after them. It's okay, and to be able to to cope with stressors, um, but you know, not easier said than done. And because of that, you know, through, through in the process of writing this paper and learning so much, um, so much. And, and I, I studied people like uh, Margaret Wehrenberg and Catherine Pittman and Ron Siegel and, and these real uh, specialists and professors of anxiety, you know, and they really talked a lot about the physiological basis of anxiety and where it comes from and how we're wired. And in doing so, I was able to develop a treatment protocol to address anxiety, which has been very useful in helping people learn, you know, that there are skills that we can learn uh, to talk ourselves down and to, to prepare and to work through episodes of acute anxiety.
0: Yeah, it's so important. And I know it must give a lot of relief to the people that you work with to have Something they can do. You know, we talk a lot in the biodine model about hitting the ground running, you know, doing something new in the first visit. So how does that do you mind talking a little bit about the treatment protocol or the assessment and treatment protocol? Sure.
1: Yeah, so so the protocol is very simple really. But what it does is it breaks down the steps so that it's sort of an easy to follow recipe, mm-hmm. so to speak. Uh, for people to kind of, to, to be able to remember. It has an acronym so that it's easy to remember and people can pull it up. Uh, and, and that's the goal is to kind of try to recognize as soon as possible when the anxiety is creeping in or when something's triggering it. And the, the first, it's called the REMA protocol. And the first letter R stands for just that, recognize. Recognize when. Uh, as soon as you can, when that anxiety, people get better and better at it as time goes on, you know, recognize um, that the anxiety is setting in, there's starting to be some, some symptoms, some, some physical manifestations of it, mm-hmm. and also maybe some rumination. Mm-hmm. And the next letter E is explore. And, and the design there is to explore the trigger. Mm-hmm. Um, so what triggered, you know, a person would say to themselves, what triggered me to have this anxiety all of a sudden, you know, what happened and to take a moment to reflect. Sometimes it's easier for people to to know exactly, you know, sometimes there's a very specific trigger and other times we have to do a little uncovering. Um, and then M, which is sort of like a mindfulness piece, um, a meditative piece where, uh, the person takes a a moment and I teach them to do square breathing, Mm -hmm. um, so that it's basically four breaths in, you know, four breaths, hold, for, I'm sorry, for, you know, hold for a count of four and then release the breath and then wait. And it's sort of, um it's designed that way just because, you know, there again, people have an instruction to do it four times. And it, it you know, it's very well documented that when we slow our breathing and really tune into it and connect with our heart rate, you know, that just that exercise alone is is very valuable in calming anxiety. Yeah. So there's that step. Mm-hmm. And then the last piece of it is A, which stands for action.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: at that point, the person's instructed to shift gears and to do something um, different than what they were doing. So it's designed to pull the person out of ruminative thinking or perseverative thinking And to, you know, usually once we know a person, we can help them to figure out what that action might be for them. For somebody, it might be, you know, jumping on the treadmill. For another person, um, it might be doing an actual chore Mm -hmm. or something that's sort of a go-to, try to help people develop a go-to so that they don't have to think about what they're going to do at that point. So, So I teach the REMA protocol in session and then encourage people to use it. When they experience anxiety outside of the the, the office,
0: mm-hmm. and and talk a little bit about the results because you you found you had an interesting result in that at, at first you were also doing a biometric um, measurement of heart rate, mm-hmm. and so talk a little bit about you know kind of your uh-huh. theory behind that and what ended up happening because I think that's an oh
1: yeah point. I sort of I sort of forgot about that. Um, yeah, I think what happened was for some people, instead of things slowing down for them, they actually speeded up. So I realized we couldn't use those metrics because for some people, the action might be physical. And so instead of calming down, not necessarily, they might have been speeding up, which wasn't necessarily a negative thing. In fact, it was really positive to help them to um, get out of their own perseverative thinking and to be focusing on external tasks or or variables so i think that's what you're referring to
0: it is that's exactly yeah and I, i thought it was so interesting because the theory was just right on you know the idea of the connection between um rumination and anxiety and an increase in heart rate but then when it got to the action the REMA, you know that last a step um you know the the patient who you were working with in particular really got a lot of benefit out of doing something physical
1: yeah yeah and so
0: you know to see that um, opposite response and then to also acknowledge that she still got the benefit of reduced anxiety but not in the biometric manner or measurement that you were expecting to be able to measure it
1: <laughs> right well said yeah that's right
0: So I think that's an important thing. And and I know you, you talk with everybody about, you know, choosing an action, like you said, and setting them up for success by having an action that they know provides some relief from anxiety. So doing something physically active, what are some of the other actions that the folks that you're working with or that you have taken with, you know, some success?
1: Yeah. Well, one person, this was kind of funny. She realized that, um, she, wanted to, it, it would sort of drive her to do a chore that she was avoiding, mm-hmm. um, you know, because it, it, she knew it would be helpful for her. So she would jump up and empty the dishwasher mm-hmm. um, or do something in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. Um, another person would do uh, something that they knew that they had to get done also, like writing out a card or, or, or you know, reaching out to another person. Um, so to, to sort of make a connection with somebody mm-hmm. uh, was helpful for her so yeah there've been some interesting findings in yeah. that
0: yeah but i
1: think that's a nice way to individualize the treatment to help people you know to figure out what's going to work for them and it also increases the buy in if they're part of you know identifying mm-hmm. what what a what a what type of an activity will be useful for them
0: absolutely yeah well, and, and I'm sure like most other patients who are learning new things, they probably experience not as significant a relief in the beginning because they're still think they're still having to apply the, the cortical, you know, skill of working through, or the, excuse me, the cognitive skill of, of, you know, noticing, recognizing, like you said, and that can seem time consuming or maybe uncomfortable for people who do a lot of escapism and, avoiding of uncomfortable feelings and sensations in their body.
1: Yeah. In fact, I had a very interesting uh, case on Friday where something similar to that happened where the person was triggered and the the trigger was so intense for them that they had a full on, full-blown panic attack and wound up making terrible or you know maladaptive decisions, things that were not beneficial at all. Mm-hmm. And um, she just did not see, she loves this protocol and uses it frequently. But when this situation occurred, y- you're right, it was so intense physiologically that she reacted. Mm-hmm. And she didn't understand, and she asked even to talk about it. She did not understand that at that moment she had a choice. It felt like such, it really felt like a tiger was chasing her.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. And so she did not feel like she could go to that rational cortical side at all. Yeah. And, you know, throughout the course of discussion, she recognized that she really could, that it really, you know, we don't have to react the way that we have in the past, that that is really a choice. Mm -hmm. And so what we did was we worked out steps. So if that situation were to arise again, we walked through it and talked about how she could slow things down so Mm -hmm. that she could take the time to either do the protocol or just to kind of come to her senses, so to speak, you know, to to recognize that she has options and that Mm -hmm. she can take her time to make decisions in her best interest. So it's very, very helpful.
0: You know, I I love the way that you described all of that because you really, you know, for, for her and what a huge help to her, for you to work through this with her, you used what could have been perceived as a setback or, you know, taking a step backwards to really propel treatment forward by using the experience of the quote unquote setback to figure out how do we move forward through this?
1: Yeah, I like that. That's a, that's a nice comment because I think that's 75% of what I do with people Mm -hmm. is really just reframe things Mm -hmm. and and help them look at the, help people to look at things just a little bit differently Yeah, through a different lens. And it makes a world of difference. And, And that's where we get back to that neuroplasticity.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. It does. It circles right back to the neuroplasticity because in the future, it's almost the idea that, you know, sort of a quote unquote relapse is expected as part of therapy. And that while some people feel often that they haven't made, I I hear this sometimes from people who, you know, are working through difficult stuff, developmental trauma, you know, stuff that Mm -hmm. tends to stick around. Um, And stuff that needs to maybe be worked on over time and as the human develops. Um, But it can be very difficult for people because they're thinking, oh my gosh, all of this time that I've spent working through this and now here I am still dealing with it and it feels like a real failure.
1: Yes, that it that comes up all the time. And it's true. Yeah. And it's the furthest thing from a failure. You right. know, it's basically just sort of a reminder that this issue exists. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the person is really no further back mm-hmm. than they were. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they, especially if they're in treatment because they have the comfort of the therapist to help them to kind of look at what happened and to use it. Mm-hmm. as a learning opportunity.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, one one kind of visual I like to use especially cuz we live in Arizona so a lot of people hike and you know there are some pretty pretty hefty upward hikes, you know, sometimes up to 2 or 3000 feet in the Phoenix area from sea level where we start. And I like to use the visual of, you know, if imagine if you're halfway up the mountain and you're just looking up and you're thinking, oh, my gosh, I have so much further to go. But you take the time to turn around and try to look back to the starting point of, you know, the trailhead and and where you started from. And my goodness, how far you've already come.
1: Right. Yeah. Nice imagery.
0: Yeah, I think it's a nice, you know, I definitely use that in my own life. I, I do a lot of hiking and and for me, I'm like, okay, just remember, you know, I may have stopped at the halfway point here on this particular thing I'm working on, or I may have had to backtrack and take a different trail because the trail I was taking up is now blocked, or it's no mm-hmm. longer you know, in Arizona, a lot with the rains that we get a trail will go away. And it, and it looks like a trail or, you know, the, the water flowing down will often make it seem like it's a trail, but it, it's really not a trail. And sometimes you do have to backtrack. And, you know, the idea of neuroplasticity is like that as well. Sometimes uh-huh. we try a strategy that ends up not working out and it's kind of a failure, but then we just try a new strategy and that's your neuroplasticity right there is switching from, Oh my God, I failed. Now I got to quit. I'm going to give up to like you mentioned, I have the option, I have the choice. I can think through this if I slow things down.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I'll give you a uh Jersey shore example that I had last week, which was, okay. you know, going out on a paddle board and making the mistake of looking at the water when I was standing up and like getting kind of, you know, motion, you know, you know, um off balance, uh, yeah. because the water was moving. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just decided, well, I'm not going to stand up, but I'm still going to have a really good time on the paddleboard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, you know, so they're right. There are always ways to, um, to cope with stressors and, mm-hmm. uh, and reframe them uh, to still have a positive experience.
0: Yeah. 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 I really like that. I, I, I really appreciate the REMA, you know, protocol. And I know that the folks that you work with definitely appreciate it. So tell us a little bit about, um, your business plan and, you know, kind of what, what did you do? Of course I know this, but tell your listeners, what did you do? Um, you know, throughout the program, To really come up with the concept of the business that you wanted to use that you wanted to do for your business plan and you know kind of how did it come together throughout the process of going through the program Mm
1: -hmm. yeah so so there were so many pieces and the most obvious one is you know there's actually a course in which uh which students design their business plan to the letter you know and so that was really helpful in, you know, I'm a very gray sort of fuzzy person and I, I don't take the time necessarily to really iron out details. And, but in that course, when you're writing a business plan, you know, that's really not an option. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, even, even the financial aspect of it was discussed and we were really had to project expenses and that sort of thing. So that was very helpful. Mm-hmm. And, and I would say that's probably why I'm actually sitting here right now. You know, uh, I could have done this a while ago, but um, it, it it just it, it it helped me to kind of break out on my own and to recognize that that I could do this, um, and all of the other pieces. Uh, you know, the the medical literacy courses were very useful because I I deal with um, mostly older people. Not always, but you know, people who, and oftentimes people with medical issues and and chronic conditions, comorbidities, um, people who are newly diagnosed with with diseases like Parkinson's or. MS, or you know, a multitude of things. Uh, you know, I have, I see somebody who has chronic Lyme's disease who's uh, totally incapacitated at a very young age, and all yeah. of those kinds of things. So the medical literacy is helpful and uh, um, and 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 really help things to kind of take shape. And then another another area um, that CGI focuses on is um, you know, socioeconomic status and and inequities uh, that people mm-hmm. experience and to really look at that. And one of my goals uh, as a behavioral health provider was to break down barriers to treatment. And so the way I do that is to, you know, accept insurance, especially Medicare. Yeah. Um, you know, and I receive a lot of referrals for older adults who mm-hmm. are disabled people who who have Medicare. And mm-hmm. so I accept that coverage and it helps people to be in treatment that might not necessarily be able to access it and so so that was beneficial as well to kind of look at that aspect of things and how really how the inequities are really you know striking and and shocking even to this day
0: yeah absolutely and you know fortunately we're you know because of the pandemic we've we've again using that resilient mindset, right? We, we have an opportunity to really look at how we're not doing well and where we're not doing well, and absolutely attack that and address it with strategies that we know can help. And that's definitely something that, you know, I think you're doing as, you know, part of your own business model that has to be done to improve the equity and access
1: yeah. And one of the thing, the silver linings of, of COVID, although I've had some very tragic experiences recently with patients um, who've had COVID, but one of the silver linings of this uh, pandemic has been the uh, sort of the advent and, and the acceptance of telehealth. And, um, you know, the fact that Medicare embraced it as an opportunity for people to have treatment when they were confined to their to their homes and now has, you know, now Medicare and some of the other insurance companies are determin you know recognizing how beneficial it is and how much access it, it offers people. And so they're going to continue to allow it to be covered. Yeah. And um, that that has been the timing of that was really wonderful for me professionally to be able to work with people and to you know to have them stay safe and stay home uh, yeah. but to be able to to work on their anxiety and their other conditions
0: yeah it's worth noting that you were right in the middle of your culminating project when the pandemic hits you know and the cohort um you know of course we had a small cohort but the the cohort that you were in everybody had to really kind of pivot um, you know, with with how they were going to deliver or implement the idea behind um, their culminating project. So you were all very brave and very quick to just say, "Oh, I got this. I know what I'm going to do."
1: <laughs> or at least that's I think half me. <laughs> half the battle was finding a quiet place to work. And um, oh yeah, I, you may remember the one time that you called me and I was uh, operating out of the shed. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I do remember that. Yeah. Yes. I, um, uh, boy, I started seeing patients remotely during the pandemic as well. And there were times where, um, uh, my bedroom closet was used <laughs> for a phone call during a time when my home was very busy with humans and dogs. Yes. So, yeah, I think we've mm-hmm. probably all been there and what would have been considered, you know, really, uh, impossible if not highly unprofessional before is just the way that we have had to move on through our lives like we do the best we can right but
1: yeah perfect right we're all human
0: yeah yeah and I I've also heard a lot of feedback from patients during this time that you know this is actually just a better solution for them um that they you know are saving a lot of time you know that would have had to take away from work Um, or, you know, child child care or other, you know, responsibilities in just getting to and from appointments.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, people that have these have medical issues, and it can be very difficult for them to access transportation. And, Mm -hmm. and, you know, they lack mobility. So, um, you know, I've been known to go to people's homes, but having telehealth is certainly, you know, a a nice option across the board. And, and I find that even now that, you know, although things are starting to creep back up, you know, even when things were better and people were vaccinated, you know, many people opted to to continue with telehealth and it's mm-hmm. been, it's it's a time saver in a lot of ways and it's been, yeah, it's very much appreciated yeah. by, by, by patients and I think providers alike.
0: Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. And, and I think it, you know, to, to go to circle back to the social determinants of health, Almost everyone has some type of smartphone now, um, you know, smartphone models are, are becoming more affordable um, for folks and through a smartphone or even a, a telephone connection being able to have that connection with a the therapist. Um, you know, if you don't have transportation or gosh, I've had patients who were um, on several different buses for an hour and a half in one direction, just to make it to an appointment on time. And Mm -hmm. you can't count on a bus to, you know, stay on track, stay on schedule. And it's really difficult to, you know, navigate that when you don't have your own transportation. And if you add a couple of kids with you as you're, you know, coming to or from it, it gets even crazier. So, yeah, it's definitely a benefit that kind of a, that can be a response to addressing some of those social determinants, but that's provided that you have that phone.
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And there are some people, even when they have access to, you know, to video calls um, that even prefer just to, to have a regular old fashioned phone call. Um, you know, and I talked to somebody that I used to see in the office that, and now we do telehealth just with a, a regular phone connection, old-fashioned phone connection. And um, we talked about, you know, our impressions. She asked me and we decided to compare notes, you know, and I think we both decided that we were both pretty happy with it. And she felt that she was getting as much out of it as she did when she came to the office.
0: Mm-hmm. So. That's wonderful. I did have, I would say there were two patients that I was working with. Out of all of the patients that I was seeing during the pandemic that were so zoom fatigued Mm -hmm. all day at work that they just could not handle another zoom session. And so they really requested that we do phone only. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it was on, on certainly the burden was on me to just follow up regularly and say, do you feel like you're getting what you need? Mm -hmm. And every time we talked about it, you know, we talked about the pros and cons. We talked about you know, were they, were their needs being met? And every time for both of them, they were saying and providing feedback such as, I'm really glad that I have this option because yes. I don't think I would do therapy if I had to do Zoom or if I had to go mm-hmm. in the office. I just can't fit that into my life right now. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. I, I think everybody except for Bill is probably a proponent. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, uh, probably <laughs> true. Yeah. So that that's referring to one of the co- yeah. cohort uh, peers who who really has um a, a very strong preference for in-person meetings. Yes, exactly.
1: <laughs> but yeah, and um and many people have realized, you know, that they that they're more proficient with um with technology than they thought they were. You know, people yeah. who do have access to it um have really stepped up and uh you know there are so many platforms now available, you know, a lot of the the uh electronic health record providers, you know, offer their own platform as does psychology today, which is HIPAA compliant. So there are lots of options for people.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I I think that's, that's another, you know, just to go back to your comment, it's definitely another silver lining that, um, that we can be grateful for that, you know, I think oftentimes, and this is another thing that relates to that physician anxiety and burnout, We don't, as healthcare providers, we don't have control over the way that we deliver services um, all of the time. And, you know, that's kind of a fallacy among the public, you know, as well, that if we're delivering things in a certain way, it's because we want to, or because we chose to do it that way. Sometimes we are just as restricted as they are in their Mm -hmm. access to us, um, you know, based on the kind of care that health insurance will or won't pay for, or the restrictions that they place um, on the way that we care for human beings. Yeah, um, yeah. So that- I, I think that's one thing for me that really gave me a little bit more control over my life was being able to deliver in a way that was more suitable to a busy pregnant or postpartum mom with a brand new baby, mm-hmm. who certainly doesn't want to take that brand new baby out in a global pandemic. Um, but right. it's hard enough to get out of the house when it's not a global pandemic. Um, Right.
1: That's a, that's a great point. I never thought of it from, from that respect perspective, but yeah, yeah, of course that makes total sense.
0: Right. Yeah. And so, you know, there were some people who were saying, oh, they're going to stop allowing us to do it this way. And, and I was saying, you know, then I'll, I will appeal, you know, on behalf of my patients because they really are preferring this, this delivery system. So.
1: Yes, and advocacy is certainly another piece of, of the CGI program, you know, really recognizing that um, that we need to advocate not only for ourselves, but for patients' needs as well. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, and, and 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 that also is certainly part of my business plan is, you know, figuring out how to pivot and how to meet people's needs. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that involved going to people's homes as well and doing whatever it takes really to help them to, to receive services.
0: Yeah. I remember that from your business plan. And I really appreciated your openness to, you know, offering that in-home option, because for a lot of people, especially those who, um, may be older and less familiar with technology, maybe don't have a smartphone or a tablet they can use, you know, would really need an, an in-home care. And, you know, my dad just had quadruple bypass surgery. And, um, so you know, fortunately he's, he's on Medicare and he was able to get some in-home services for things like OT and PT and, you know, an in-home nurse who would come and check on him. But now he has to travel to the cardiac rehab center and Mm -hmm. they live in kind of a more remote area. It's about 35 minutes from, you know, quote town. And, um, that's going to be a real burden on, on them to, to get to and from those appointments three times a week. Yes, and Uh,
1: I'm glad you brought that up. I'm glad you brought that up because that really, you know, I worked in that field for for a long time in medical social work and and with a home care agency that provided exactly those services. And people don't realize how time limited those services are, and they're designed to be short term and um, acute, you know, and to help people sort of transition from a medical facility to being home but just when people start to get used to having those services come into the home that's just about when they sort of plateau and all the services suddenly are gone and that's where i try to pick up right then and there Mm -hmm. so that people don't fall between the cracks um, but so that they can have ongoing care um, Mm -hmm. because it's really one of the shortfalls in the system
0: absolutely yeah it's definitely you know, and my, my dad is very fortunate to still be married and, you know, to have a, a strong relationship with my mom who has been doing her best, you know, to be his caregiver and care coordinator, but it's certainly a full-time job. And we were saying, you know, when my dad was even in the hospital, we were saying, what on earth does a person do when they have no one? Um, yeah. how, how do they how do they survive? Because, you know, my dad had some real complications after his surgery and without myself and my mom, and then my sister who ended up flying in from Ireland. So I'm a doctor of behavioral health. My sister is a veterinary surgeon. So we had, you know, kind of the, the healthcare field kind of covered and we could talk physician to physician, you know, um, what do families do who don't have a of a- Yes, and, um, and
1: it's so point. true. Yeah, there's so much isolation and people do not know how to avail themselves of the resources. The resources are limited, of course, as it is, mm-hmm. but people don't even really know what's out there. And then they're just sort of uh, abandoned by the medical system once yeah. they 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 reach any sort of stability it doesn't mean that they're well they're still very much in need of services but there are not really necessarily to meet them there and um i think that really plays into heightened anxiety and depression and all of the the, the psychological aspects of being alone and um you know this the surgeon general um Dr. Vivek Murthy, he's he he was the, the last one, um, actually wrote a book called um, I I have it. It's called Together. Mm-hmm. Um, he he I, it, it, I I couldn't believe it. He actually wrote a, a whole book mm-hmm. um, called The Healing Power of Human Connection in a Sometimes Lonely World, and he wrote it as a doctor. You know because he saw how how much of a burden. Isolation is, especially in this country, when we don't have, you know, extended families living together. Right. You know, with all the progress that we've made here, we've really kind of shot ourselves in the foot in some respects because we don't have, you know, support and connection with other people. Mm -hmm. And he he talks in this book endlessly, and my and a lot of my CP is devoted to this also, um, just about how that. That isolation, alienation drives uh, mental health conditions and also contributes to uh, medical decline.
0: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I think I caught him on a podcast with, I don't remember who it could have been, Brene Brown, it could have been anyone um uh-huh. t- talking about that book and he did such a nice job unpacking you know the the research and and the literature that he had reviewed and you know really did a good job delivering the the punch lines of his research and experience as a physician there so yeah that's that's a huge book i'll i'll add that as a link to recommend to the listeners uh-huh. so well, we're coming on close to the end of our time here dr clancy and I wanted to just check in and, and see if there was anything else about your CP or your business plan or just, you know, the role as a DBH that you, you want to kind of talk about.
1: Hmm. You know, we really just kind of spontaneously touched on most mm-hmm. uh, most of the, the critical points. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just have to say that you know, it's been a very valuable degree in the sense that, um, you know, it, it's helped me to kind of construct where I want to go and to mm-hmm. be mindful of um, how connected, uh, how important integrated health is yeah, and, um, and, and how useful it is in, in practicing.
0: Mm-hmm. Thank you for, for that input. And also, I'm so glad that you know, post-graduation, you still feel that way. Mm. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I know, you know, for me, one year in to the DBH program, it kind of feels for a, a busy working professional, like, oh boy, I'm starting to get a little burned out here. Did you have any burnout while you were trying to get beyond that first year of the DBH program? You mean, can you, so you mean while I was in the program? As a student. Mm -hmm. As a student.
1: Huh. No, I just remember sitting uh, with that little spreadsheet of all the coursework (laughs) that was required and counting credits and seeing just how fast I could do it. Um, (laughs) But I think what I appreciated was, uh, was the fact that you know, you really allowed us to do it at our own pace, and that wasn't, you know, just to slow it down necessarily. But in my case, I really wanted to speed it up.
0: You did, and, and you were ready and, to
1: and, go. huh. Yeah, and and you really, the, you know, the school really makes that happen. So I, I think that individualized uh, approach is very helpful. So I did not so much experience the burnout while I was there. I think as I think when I was finished is when it hit me that um, you know there was nobody to answer to anymore, there was not so much accountability <laughs> and I didn't really like that feeling of being out you know and not being connected with uh, with the cohort with the other students and with this faculty um, just yep. you know after so much uh, of an intensive uh, experience being in in school with everybody for those years
0: and it's funny that you say that because so many people still if they haven't done online education feel like like oh, I could never do an online program because I really like the interaction with faculty and other students. But I honestly feel like maybe doing it remotely is even a little bit better because yeah, we're, I um, we're I, in each I have, homes. We see each other's partners yeah. and kids and dogs. Exactly. And <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, it, it's true. It is very personal. And mm-hmm. you know, even this might be worth mentioning is another. Um, you know, I learned EMDR through the mm-hmm. program and mm-hmm. was able to take advantage of that offering, even online, it was so effective. And, and so, um, I mean, Dr. Gail Cortez, I can't say enough about her Amazing. as a, yeah. And um, I, I mean, to be able to have the capacity to, to have her as a professor, um, you know, and such an expert in the field of trauma-informed care. You know, I never would have had that experience had it not been virtual, because she's in Arizona, I think, mm-hmm. and you know, I'm in New Jersey. So, yeah, um, yeah no, I, I think the online uh, forum was was there was really no detriment to it at all. It was very, yeah. very, um, very positive experience and, and user friendly. Mm-hmm.
0: I'm so glad. And as you know, um, you've probably seen the outreach from Dr. Grant Baldwin about um, alumni meetups and networking that we're working on. We're trying to survey everybody because, as you know, with busy professionals across the (laughs) the nation, unless we have a webinar time at 5 p.m. Pacific time yeah. on Tuesdays, then it won't as as work. Coordinate. Yeah. Um, but, you know, one of the things
1: I did, because I was feeling that way, and I was afraid I would lose momentum professionally, mm-hmm. you know, I still have some things I want to achieve. Mm-hmm. And so I joined, you know, through the school, you get connected with, um, with certain organizations that, that otherwise I probably wouldn't have even known about. And so one of them is ERPEC. Mm-hmm. which I actually wrote down what that stands for, but you might be able to help.
0: Emerging me. Research and Professionals in Integrated Care. Yes. So they offered a mentorship program, which
1: mm-hmm. I uh, applied for and I got. And so Wonderful. I'm working with a mentor, you know, to be able to, you know, learn how to, you know, and kind of um, get the benefit of her experience in terms of how to Uh, pursue some of these ideas and and how to really develop the protocol for anxiety Mm -hmm. so that it's more available to other people. Mm -hmm. And um, I, you know, I've been invited to present at the International Conference of Integrated Care. So we'll have to see if that's going to come to fruition.
0: Yeah. So yeah, the
1: next
0: the next um, integrated care conference is going to be in Denmark. So that would be quite a fun trip for you. I'll be there. Oh, yeah. Hmm. Yep. Yeah. I think this fall is Toronto, right? Mm, it or is. It's it's virtual. Yeah. We yeah. Had to move it virtual. I was really hoping that we would be able to have an open conference this fall mm. in Toronto in North America. Um. But you know, with the, the Delta variant, they were they were wise to say, let's just keep it virtual. So, hopefully, by the spring, um, you know, the Delta variant, and we'll have things more under control, so that we can be together. Because the international community has been hit of integrated care has been hit really hard by the pandemic because we are, we are used to being in person, seeing each other Mm -hmm. in person. And as, as wild as that sounds, you know, um, travel among EU countries was, you know, pretty easy. Most people were coming an hour, two hours, three, four hours, whereas flying from North America, you know, obviously is a bigger journey, Mm -hmm. but, um, the connections that you make within the community, just being there in person, having lunch together, going for happy hour after you know the conference together are really, really valuable. So I, I can't wait to get back to that, seeing people in, in person. I'm definitely missing that type mm-hmm. of professional experience. Mm-hmm. So, okay, well, listen, Dr. Clancy, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule. And I know you're going to take some vacation soon. I hope it's wonderful and relaxing and restorative and that your patients just benefit, continue to benefit by working with you.
1: Thank you so much, Dr. English. It's a pleasure. And it's been nice spending this hour with you.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. Let's do it again. Okay. (laughs) Take care. All right. Talk to you soon. Okay. Bye now. Bye.